Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 122. In this episode, we're having part two of our conversation on theology and Black Mirror. And joining us for this conversation, we have Dr. Jeremiah Bailey, who is an adjunct professor at Baylor University, Elizabeth Colhane, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy and religion at the University of Queensland in Australia, and a tutor at Ridley College in Melbourne, Professor James McGrath, who is the Clarence L. Goodwin Chair in New Testament Language and Literature at Butler University in Indiana, and Dr. Nathaniel Warren, who is priest in charge at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Indiana. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Brandon Hurlbert, Dr. Chris Song, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this was a fantastic conversation following up on the conversation that we had last week with a few of our contributors, Amber, and it's lovely now to have uh, Brandon and Chris, uh, some of our Two Cities team members who also contributed to the volume, uh, join us for this conversation along with a, a number of others. Speaking of which, John and I decided over the course of putting the volume together that we wanted to dedicate it to the Two Cities team. You guys are some of our dearest friends and dialogue partners and colleagues in the broader academic field, particularly during the time that we were putting the volume together. Your friendship, as we've been recording these podcasts together, has been an inspiration for us and also something that really edified us during this intense writing process. So Two Cities is a group of people who are interested in culture and discipleship, and we felt like what we were doing was just an extension of that. So we want to thank the entire Two Cities team for what you've meant to us and dedicate this book to you. I must I must confess that I, uh, you know, I got I got my copy. It's been very nice to get a copy, but I didn't read the introduction carefully enough because I didn't realize that you dedicated it to us uh, until I saw it on Twitter. (laughs) Dedication no. revoked. Dedication yeah. revoked. No. You, you guys are the godparents of our book. Seriously. And they were also in the book. That means you two are doubly special. Yeah, that's what that means. Don't think about it too much. <laughs> that, that, that means that you're the godparents and our children. <laughs> I think I think that breaks some canon law somewhere. Uh, <laughs> well, on behalf of the Two Cities t- team, we accept this dedication with joy and oh man we are just so pumped about it so thank you so much so our conversation today is part two of this broader discussion about our volume with our different contributors last week we had a number of contributors who were more engaged in the philosophy theology side of the volume and this week we're really excited to have contributors who are engaged more in the biblical studies and theology side of the volume and with that here's our conversation with jeremiah elizabeth james and nathaniel Well, it's wonderful to have a number of the contributors to our volume here for another conversation on Black Mirror. Really excited to uh, kick off today, especially with the recent news that there's going to be a sixth season of Black Mirror. And since you all are fans of Black Mirror uh, and and have thought deeply about it already uh, for our volume, and we'll hear a little bit about some of the essays that you have contributed to the volume in just a bit, Thought it'd be interesting to start with just a kind of open-ended, where where do you hope Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones and and all of the creative minds behind the show take Black Mirror with this new series that that is set to come out sometime down the road? So this is, uh, this is Nate. I think with all the interest in like space travel with um, Elon Musk and, uh, oh gosh, the Amazon guy. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, with all the new interest in space travel, I'm wondering if they'll do some sort of cautionary tale about going to space. Um, that would be that'd be fascinating. Did you just forget Jeff Bezos's name? I just forgot Jeff Bezos's name. I think Sorry. you're imagining a better world. So. <laughs> I'm James McGrath here. Really interested in the idea of Black Mirror going into space. 
like the the space season or even the space episode. Mm -hmm. I wonder what a distinctively Black Mirror take on space travel would be, right? Because they haven't mm -hmm. done that thing that I think a lot of people think is sort of de definitive of science fiction. Uh, what would what would Black Mirror in space be? I think is the more interesting question. I think the uh, USS Callister episode. It kind of seemed like it was going the space exploration route, and then they kind of pivoted to I think a more interesting storyline. But it'd be interesting to see if they would kind of revisit that uh, kind of scenario and make it more explicitly space oriented. Actually, I'm like I'm liking I'm liking that. I'm imagining a scenario in which we're really puzzled because it is just seems like there's nothing interesting happening. And then we find out that this is a simulation that people are put into so that their brains don't uh, malfunction when they're in suspended animation on a long space journey or something. And that's the that's the thing at the end. Right. So it's the exact opposite of uh, USS Callister or something like that. I'd watch it. <laughs> I also wonder, too, this is Nate. Um, I also wonder, too, if given the pandemic, given the racial strife, at least in the U.S., that the episodes won't be won't like go that direction more medical advancement or um dealing with more political fascism and other historical race issues perhaps even a an episode on genocide or or holocaust that comes from the advancement of some kind of technology or something this is elizabeth um you could have like a hong kong kind of style covid camp but maybe the covid QR is implanted and it's like race-based or something like it only works on some race and what happens in the camp yeah maybe kind of like a an extension of men against fire from from season three it kind of kind of sounds like this is chris i saw the news this morning um that they announced the new season and i i i felt hopeful like i i think there's an optimism because i felt like the trump administration had broken black mirror and Charlie Brooker almost said as much that, look, we're living in it now. I mean, it's there's there's no reason for the show. It's the Waldo um, moment. <laughs> I, you know, so I, I just I just feel that, and it's not because of the change of administration that you know that release that releases a certain kind of creative creative energy for the show, but I just feel like there are there are more stories to tell at this point that um, that I think. Um, can can sort of resume a conversation of of self reflection in a way that I felt like couldn't happen, you know, in in the recent past. I don't know. For me, I, you know, I I expect that they won't be too on the nose on some of these themes, just because of how they've been in the in the past few seasons. I just want good stories, but just the fact that they're running the show again, I think, is is um, is a sign to me that we're uh, we're 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 in a better place, <laughs> entertainment wise. What, wasn't there a, uh, didn't they do a, uh, an ad campaign that was, you know, Black Mirror season six available everywhere at the beginning of the pandemic? It wasn't an ad campaign. It was actually a fan poster in, in, <laughs> in Madrid that was made, like happening all around you kind of thing. Yeah, it's sort of like just tapping into our collective uh, dystopian experience. Right. There was also sort of this directed by David Lynch thing that you could just put on everything. Um <laughs> I mean, Twin Peaks fans would know, but it just, it really did feel like that for a while. Yeah, I was going to say, I might, I might like to see some tonal shifts a little bit uh, in a new season. Cause I think um, sort of the, the cautionary tale angle, uh, it doesn't work as much anymore because we're, we're all living it. Like uh, Chris was saying, you know, so I think we don't, we don't need that as much anymore. Uh, and if we could shift more from like a horror mode to more like a tragic mode where uh, it's more reflective, where less, gee whiz, what would happen if we took this to an extreme and we're more like, in what ways are we already uh, in a dystopia? If we could find some ways to, um, to kind of pull that out thematically. And I think what um, Nate was saying earlier about uh, racial divisions and things like that that are becoming more prevalent in, in our culture, I think those are great directions that we that we can take it. So it's more in that mm -hmm. cathartic kind of space mm -hmm. of working through how disquieting reality is uh, and less more of a, uh, what would happen if we looked at our smartphones too much, you know, kind of, kind of space. I think we've kind of, 
I think we've kind of all grown beyond that a little bit. Um, so I, I would like to see them freshen the show up by kind of changing directions a little bit. I'm going to follow up. This is Nate. I'm going to follow up from Jeremiah. I mean, the interesting thing about the race stuff is that it's not new. It's been race. This sort of racist events have been happening for a long time. It's technology, which has made it more prevalent in the culture because we can video things and so on. That would be an interesting take, an interesting approach to say, well, to explore that. You know, this thing that's been happening for a long time. Um, now we're made, now people who weren't privy to that experience are made more privy to that experience because of the technology. Like, what if there was like a found footage type episode that was all police body cams? Like, I mean, uh, there's a lot you could do with it, you know, if you went that kind of direction. On a totally different note, it would be super fascinating to have a whole episode done completely on Zoom <laughs> to like tap into our like post pandemic like experience of you, you know there's actually a really good horror movie called unfriended i don't know if anybody's seen it but there's i think there's a couple sequels to it but it actually is kind of like an entire movie that takes place on on zoom or like a skype chat i think is what it would have been it's actually really well done in given the format and and sort of its creative kind of constraints i actually think they they did something pretty interesting um with that but yeah so i that would actually be really interesting uh potentially and uh, charlie brooker if you're listening hit us up we'd love to be a part of any of the writing rooms that uh, that you'll put together for for upcoming uh material well since we have you guys here it would be great to give our listeners a bit of a preview of each one of your essays. So maybe no spoilers, but can you give us a taste of what it is you were after and in general what you were arguing uh, just to kind of awaken some interest in, in reading your particular chapter? Uh, this is James McGrath here. As always happens with publishing, a while passes and then you're like, did I write that or I didn't, didn't I? Is that a thought that occurred to me afterwards? Uh, is that somebody else's essay? Had, uh, it's an idea I wish I had, which I'm now imagining I had. But my uh, chapter in Theology and Black Mirror focuses on afterlife. And so it has some, some of the obvious episodes in there, but I tried to get also some of the uh, less obvious ones. And in the process, I just discovered some of the even deeper richness sort of in terms of storytelling, engagement with history, historical sources that you know, the, the script writers were drawing on. Uh, in Black Mirror. Uh, so thinking about theology in Black Mirror, it really is a show that you need to bring your theology to, right? It doesn't necessarily ask those questions in as overt a way as some franchises do, right? You're watching Battlestar Galactica and it's like, okay, we're gonna throw mentions of God and gods in there just to give you something, your obvious discussion starter. Uh, but it, you don't actually have to scratch much beneath the surface in order to see that there really is, you know, something there. So, uh, thinking about, you know, there's the digital afterlives. There's be right back with its, you know, quasi, you know, sort of, is this a resurrection? Is this the same person? Things like that. Uh, but then there are others like uh, White Bear, which I was surprised and yet not surprised uh, how, how many times that, that came up across several chapters in the volume that had at least somewhat different interests. And yet we all were like, but we can't talk about this without mentioning this episode. And I think that's another thing about Black Mirror that's, that I just love is that it's sort of intersects in that way and cross pollinates. And there's, there's always more than one thing you could talk about in relation to some episode. But really thinking about, you know, sort of how we think about afterlife, rewards and punishment, um, and atonement. And of course, White Bear is, is very much about atonement. But as I started digging into it, found out that there was this actual case that was better known in Britain than I think anywhere else in the world where there was a child murderer and didn't realize sort of the direct inspiration from that. Uh, didn't realize that some of the things that the, the actual woman who went to prison for uh, her role in this process and actually she, sort of, she compared herself to Jesus and things like that. But the fact that this episode, this is not a spoiler, this is something that's online that's mentioned in my chapter, is that uh, the episode was originally going to end with the crucifixion, right? Because you have that sort of crucifixion scene in the middle, right, where the people are being uh, strung up. And the episode goes in an unexpected direction, 
And so one of the things I loved in researching this was just discovering that you know, it wasn't just unexpected for us as the viewers, right? Uh, you know, it's like, you know, Charlie Brooker is, it's like, wait a minute, there's a fence around this place. Now I know what we're gonna do here and just goes in a direction that he didn't see coming. And so I think that's something I really like finding out. And so I don't know, as, as a fan who's trying to keep it serious and yet just would have happily just written and geeked out entirely and said, hey, isn't this cool everybody and things like that. It was good to actually have the, the theological element and the academic aspect just to make sure I kept serious but I'm actually, when I get a chance to talk about it, I'm geeking out all the more because digging into it in that serious way, I just revealed depths of uh, the episodes I was talking about, I felt. Yeah, it's Brandon here. Um, I wrote my essay um, a bit differently. I wrote it more on the kind of filmmaking technique um, that's used in a few of the episodes uh, within the show. So I looked at uh, what I call the perspective shifting technique that we can see pretty clearly in the white bear episode uh, shut up and dance and uh, men against fire and with this perspective shifting technique is as simple as it sounds uh, the perspective shifts <laughs> in the episode and so you know a, a really classic thing uh, within uh, the white bear episode which is what which is personally my favorite episode um, of the show uh, but uh, John and Amber wrote me into writing on more episodes, uh, <laughs> uh, which I think, which I'm thankful for. So it was, it was really fun and I think it worked uh, out better. But, you know, within the White Bear episode, you the opening uh, scenes have you identify with the protagonist. And then as the story goes on and progresses, the perspective shifts and then you are viewing the story through another perspective which is which is you know uh, positioned against the protagonist. And then by the end of the show, you're kind of given another perspective that complicates both of these uh, perspectives. And uh, we can see the same thing happening in Shut Up and Dance. Um, and then in Men Against Fire, it works a bit differently in that the protagonist uh, only adopts the perspective of another. Should I want to obviously the spoiler alerts, uh, but you know, I, you know, he adopts a different perspective, which complicates the one that we originally have as an audience. And obviously, you know, within filmmaking, we are generally, you know, positioned to view things through the protagonist's uh, own eyes and own perspectives and to adopt them. And then I kind of uh, investigate a, a number of these, how the filmmakers um, have um, accomplished these perspective, establishing these perspectives and establishing these privileged viewpoints. I use all of this to compare it with the Samson narrative in Judges 14 through 16. Um, and I look at how the biblical narrator uses a similar perspective shifting technique to kind of complicate the kind of more heroic depictions of Samson. And I think all of these, you know, both the biblical narrative and the three Black Mirror episodes, Black Mirror episodes, um, I think they all have to do with the nature of justice. And so I kind of investigate this kind of lex talionis, this eye for an eye perspective on justice and uh, show that, you know, or I, at least I argue that, you know, these three episodes and the biblical narrator, uh, narrator um, complicate this kind of more simplified version of justice and really put it to the to the the viewer, the audience, the reader uh, to think through, you know, what does justice uh, look like? And I think each of these episodes uh, can give us a more compelling picture. Um, so I used Gregory of Nyssa, so he's a fourth century church leader and theologian, and I used his idea of the mirror. Um, so he draws from 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see it only in a reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. So he, he uses this idea and um, he kind of sees the human soul as a mirror and it can reflect God or the divine image in kind of best, better or worse ways, I guess. And, or it can reflect idols. No. Negatively. Um, and anyway, so Gregory has kind of a rich anthropology built around the mirror and 
I was interested in exploring, I guess, the anthropology, but also kind of is Black Mirror presenting us something about the way we are now or is it more a warning of the future to come? Like not that you have to choose one or the other because I discovered when I was reading the literature a lot of people speak about it particularly as like a warning in terms of the future. But um, drawing on Charlie Brooker's comment in an interview a number of years ago, he, um, he talked about how the, the black mirrors of our devices, I guess. And so I was interested in exploring how, yeah, how that interplays with Gregory and, 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 what, and what we might see about the role of technology. And so I was interested in um, a theorist called Walter Benjamin, who um, talks about technology, not less in the sense of um, like how we think of technology, perhaps as phones or devices, but um, as a mechanism of power, I guess. So something that produces and mediates reality. And I, th I found that also an interesting lens to, to think about. Like now, I don't want to give too many, um, too many um, spoilers, I guess, read the chapter and read the book. But um, yeah, so this kind of present future technology being kind of something that produces and mediates reality and how, how it's doing that and how um, we, Black Mirror kind of challenges that idea and, and, and creates. And um, if Black Mirror is orientating us to a dark mirror, to put it, you know, tautology, but how is Gregory also like orientating us to a mirror that reflects light and, and how do those ideas interplay? Uh, this is Chris. Um, I'm I'm glad you brought up uh, Brooker's own comments about the devices as the as the Black Mirror. Um, I've never heard that interview, although I've heard it secondhand. And so, I what what was told to me was is the moment that sometimes you're on your device, you're looking at your phone, and you see a reflection of yourself um, from whatever it is you're looking at. And there's almost like a moment of like revulsion. <laughs> That you're that you um, you you're not prepared to see yourself reflected in your your own device. Um, I don't know if that's what he was saying in that interview or not, but that's that um, that's what was communicated to me in terms of some of the genesis of the idea, at least why the show is titled that way. Um, if that's true, I think that's very interesting. Um, not as uh, Jeremiah was saying, not necessarily so that the show can sort of take sort of a um, you know, a moral lesson, you know, so, you know, you know, you know, self-critique type of thing, but just sort of evoking um, a reflection of ourselves in a way that that might produce uh, certain certain feelings. <laughs> in my own in my own uh, essay, I, I, I think and write a lot about um, Paul's language of Numa and, and the Holy Spirit. And um, What's interesting in um, the episode called San Junipero in particular, uh, it's this idea that uh, people can be present with each other uh, virtually, um, mediated by technology. They can be in sort of this digital afterlife together, um, even though the main characters in that story are in Carson City, Nevada, um, and um, you know maybe some other part of uh, the world. But Santa, these, Santa Rosa, California. Is it Santa Rosa? Okay, thanks. Um, the idea is that uh, you can be uh, somewhere um, and yet also somewhere else. It's interesting because sometimes scripture does use the language of, of the spirit in similar ways. Um, even the phrase, I'm with you in spirit, that's Pauline. You know, my, my spirit will be with you, even though I'm not here, you can judge this immoral person. That's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, uh, is it five? I think it's chapter five. And um, Jesus is saying that there is a coming a day, and, and in fact it now is, that worship neither has to happen in Jerusalem or on this other mountain. Um, worship in spirit somehow is uh, a way that sacred spaces is freed and relativized. And so these issues of what, what we gain by sort of transcending space by either technology or by NUMA, um, these are, these are uh, things that have obvious benefits. Um, you know, just, just what we went through with COVID-19 and, and being able to worship by Zoom, it opens up things, but it also has obvious drawbacks. <laughs> so um, I think the exploration of what the costs and benefits, what the, what the pros, cons are, um, that was just 
some of the uh, themes that um, that essay was sort of reflecting on. I'll just briefly jump in because I did say a little bit about San Junipero and my essay on uh, transhumanism, you know, and thinking specifically about the prospect of passing over and transferring to this digital space in terms of a transhumanist aspiration of mind uploading and sort of, you know, living in that virtual space as uh, as making, you know, heaven a place on earth, uh, according to the Belinda Carlisle uh, <laughs> song. And there's a couple of things I'm interested in. I won't share share them all here, but just um, a couple, couple of things about San Junipero in particular, because I do address kind of more what's going on, I think, in Black Mirror broadly as it relates to transhumanism. But one of the things in regards to San Junipero is sort of the desirability, perhaps, of mind uploading and whether or not that's something that uh, would be a satisfying prospect of living in this kind of digital afterlife. And I do think it is curious uh, the way it ends with, you know, the kind of um, the servers and all of the, you know, the robotic arms, like, you know, putting the little dials that represent individuals. You just get this kind of crazy digital graveyard kind of uh, view. It is really interesting because the, the episode ends so triumphantly. It seems like it's a happy ending. And I think a lot of people regard it as a happy ending. Going back to the idea idea of the black mirror i really do think that part of the concept of the black mirror with this phone is is that you know you kind of see what you want to see in the black mirror you know and so just thinking about the desirability there i've always found that that ending to be ambiguous or uh, at least for me a bit disturbing uh, which probably says more about my view of a digital afterlife than than anything else. But but I I, I have always found that to be actually quite a disturbing episode um, for that reason. It's my favorite episode, but I've I found it to be disturbing because of the way that on the one hand you have this juxtaposition of this triumphant happy right now sort of ending right where it's like we're happy right now juxtaposed with this idea that. We know that they're they're really dead. Uh, they're psychological. There's some psychological continuity, but uh, it's it's sort of in this kind of um, inauthentic, irreal sort of. I don't know how to how to really um, pinpoint it, but there's something there's something that strikes me as really kind of problematic about it. And I think that just goes back to this idea that when I look into the black mirror, I see something uh, disturbing. That moment at the end with the servers, I found it really powerful as well, but offer a maybe more positive spin on it in, in my own chapter. Um, I was also going to say, showing my age, that uh, the reason why you felt you know, at, so comfortable during the rest of the episode is that you know, everything looks like it's in the 80s, right? And that's uh, there's this nostalgia and stuff uh, for at least certain viewers. And then for others, it seemed like a very strange place, probably. Anyway, uh, but the thing that I took away from that is that when we think about digital afterlife, we tend to make comparisons with a notion of disembodied afterlife. And yet that question of what it means to be bodily, I think is, is crucial uh, to thinking about digital technology and what it can do, as well as thinking about theologies of afterlife, right? Because the, the traditional Christian hope affirmed in the creeds is of course, resurrection of the body, not uh, as the episode puts it, some crazy spiritual thing right, uh, in uh, another episode. Uh, that's in Be Right Back. And what is the spiritual, right? And is it is it a full-fledged human existence if it's lacking body, right? Are we uh, supposed to be psychosomatic unities? Uh, is that how God intended us to be in creation? Or should our hope be to escape from bodily existence into something better? Uh, certainly the New Testament talks about it as something different, but different and yet bodily, right? Spiritual and yet bodily uh, is often the language. And so I love that the servers there at the end reminded us that this seemingly disembodied existence is actually located somewhere, right? And that um, that for me just was, was really a powerful moment. And so um, I don't know if that's a positive spin on it. It depends on whether you want to be on a server and think that's a good thing, but it's not nowhere. And I thought that was significant because it's something we don't always think about when it comes to digital afterlives. Yeah, exactly. And and that's something I, I mentioned as well, that it is located somewhere and you are you can live indefinitely as long as those servers survive. You know, I mean, it's on the coast of California. That's kind of precarious position, I think. Um, but uh, one one thing that, that is also true in terms of embodiment is the fact that um, their digital avatars are, you know, they're embodied in di these digital 
digital avatars. And one of the things I bring out in my essay is that it's specifically a kind of perfect body version of themselves. And so you have a lot of interesting things going on with disability in that episode too that I bring out in my chapter. But I, I totally agree with you that there is there is a, an embodiment. Um, I, it's just it's just an embodiment that I think is uh, not not something that I'm personally uh, drawn towards. There's a TV show on uh, Amazon called Upload that's written by Greg Daniels. Uh, and it really takes this San uh, Universero. Sorry, I can never pronounce the name of that, that episode. Um, but, uh, you know, it really takes that concept and then puts it, you know, what if there were ads? <laughs> what if there were, well, what if it was uh, uh, gamified? What if it was uh, you had to pay for uh, data? when you were up there. Um, I, I just think it's a more humorous and fun take on this, uh, on a more serious uh, show like Black Mirror. We should just keep mispronouncing it, like <laughs> like San Junipero. Uh, Does anyone know how to pronounce this? It's San Junipero is how I've always pronounced it. Junipero. It, isn't, it, isn't it? Juniper. Do we hear it in the episode? It I thought no, it was Junipero. I, I don't think they ever say it in the episode. Oh, uh, really? The okay. Name of it, um, but I mean, I just I've I've always had uh, Unipero, like Unipero Sarah, like you know. Okay. Like, uh, yeah, Junipero. Yeah. I like that we just keep. I I can't even remember what Brandon said, but it was it was perfect. It was like San Jupitero or like San <laughs> Ronan Pharaoh. I'm from California. <laughs> dude. I really should know how to pronounce this. Uh, <laughs> If you're from California, you really should know how to pronounce it. And actually, although I've always never pronounced it this way, it should be San Junipero, right? It's a, it's a Spanish name, uh, like La Jolla and places like that, right? The J should be like a H. So we've gotten ourselves into this very Black Mirror situation in which if everybody's pronouncing something wrong, then is there a right pronunciation? I know we've moved far beyond this, but I, I did want to add a quick comment on the end end of uh, San Hun San Junipero, uh, which is what struck me about uh, the ending of that episode. I was also struck, as all of you were, by that kind of final shot, the sort of mechanized uh, uh, existence. But where my mind went was like, who maintains all of that, and and for how long? And it kind of made me think of uh not just in the sense of uh you know like questions of embodied or disembodied afterlife but just like the societal cost of keeping all those things running and you're gonna have more and more people and more and more servers and like does where's the impact of that and it almost becomes like a cult of the ancestors right but um but uh in digital form so i thought that was kind of a an interesting direction, you know, in terms of use of energy and use of resources and all this to kind of extend the existence of of people who are dead, basically, right? And what kind of societal costs does that have? Kind of a different direction, I, I think. That's such a fascinating thought. Like, I, I, I never considered imagining this being sort of carried out for, you know, centuries, let's say, and the idea of like mm -hmm. going, going back to meet your great, great, great grandmother mm -hmm. and grandfather, like, super that's super interesting that was a great that's a great thought um yeah i've just started this is nate i've just started a new research project that it's um i am the the grandson of a generation of people who experienced genocide from armenian americans and so i started a project of thinking about some of these things theologically but part of this project is doing an oral history of that generation before they die but if I could be plugged in and interview those people, that has interesting impl implications for, for memory, for um, perhaps court hearings, going back and, and interviewing people who have, have died of, you know, pick not only like crime, say one-to-one -one crime, but also like big Holocaust genocide crimes and um, bringing together a, a tribunal or something in, in that way. I'm, I'm sort of thinking of Hannah Arndt and, um, and her uh, Eichmann, Eichmann book. Of, you can hear the testimony of people who have, who have died and how that might change the way that we think about um, these massive historical 20th century, well, before that too, but 20th century events. So with that transition to memory, JB, please. <laughs> So I guess we both we both wrote on entire history review. Right. So 
for those who haven't seen it, the premise is, you know, human augmentation to be able to have perfect recall of memory, um, which of course, this is one of the great human failings, right? We have, Im we have imperfect uh, memories and we can have false memories and we can, as we access our memories and try to fill in details, we can overwrite them. And this is a, a common uh, kind of uh, human experience. So what I was trying to do is explore how epistemological questions can remain constant even in a situation of perfect recall. And sort of to do that, I wanted to look at different ways of, of constructing knowledge. And so I used as a kind of dialogue piece, kind of an unusual choice, um, a text called The Shepherd of Hermas which is a very bizarre, extremely long early Christian apocalypse kind of thing. It's less eschatological than other apocalypses, but it's interesting, not just um, because it gives us a window into early Roman Christianity at the end of the first, beginning of the second century, but it's also interesting as a text that expanded over time. And so either the same person or someone else has sort of um, added addenda onto this to make it longer and longer. And this is a process that happened twice. So there are three main kind of sections and these are added at different time periods. And as part of that, you get an attempt to retell and reinterpret some of the vision narratives that occur in the earliest, uh, most primitive version of the work. I don't wanna to give too many details, but there's a vision of a tower and the tower is a metaphor for the church. And uh, later on, we get another vision of a tower and we have another mediator uh, that sort of says, uh, well, I didn't give you all the details. So here is all these new details and all these new details conform pretty much to the way that your theology has changed in the last you know, like 30 or 40 years, right? And, and so that gives a question, right? We have a text that's purportedly, you know, relaying a vision that they've gotten from God, right? And uh, we get two versions of, of a vision from God. So which one of them is, is correct, right? Which is uh, uh, the truest version of the vision? And so there's this kind of um, uh, same kind of question from a different direction, right? We can use either um, kind of a materialist epistemology or we can have a revelatory epistemology. But either way, we kind of end up dealing with some of the same questions. So I'm trying to put um, Black Mirror in dialogue with an ancient Christian apocalypse to sort of say, uh, in what ways do these texts shine light on each other is kind of what I was going for. Yeah, thanks for that, TV. I, I will say this, I make this point in my, um, in my sort of, this is Nate, by the way. I make this, this point in my essay is that actually what the grain does is not perfect memory because mm -hmm. there's a scene where, so the two main characters, um, Liam and Fee, there's a scene where she truncates her memory in order to remember it falsely. Pardon my language for the listeners, but he says, sometimes you're a bitch. And she truncates the memory to say, you're a bitch. And so even the grain, and it's fascinating mm -hmm. that, that that scene takes place right after the party scene where there's another party pers person at the party who's saying to another woman who had a grain taken out that how could you live without perfect memory? But the very next, Scene, you mm -hmm. see this example of the grain not being perfect memory um and so one of the one of the points i'm trying to make in my case is that um we've gone through all these hoops to turn to implant ourselves with something which we imagine is perfect memory um but actually is not um and there might be better ways of um, remembering, which doesn't involve implanting something into our necks and into our brain. So my uh, take on this story is to put it in the context of the development of the medieval virtue of memory as it relates to um, the virtue of prudence. And I specifically look at um, Thomas Aquinas in that case. So that's the first bit. But then the second bit um, is thinking about the concept of memory, but within the Eucharist. So it's, there's this idea in Eucharistic theology called anamnesis, and it's, not, it's, a, it's a remembering, but it's a timeless remembering. It's a remembering of, that takes us out of time, that takes us out of our experience in the taking of the body and blood of Christ um, into 
the eschaton into our, our future bliss. Um, and so that actually, these are better ways of thinking about memory that don't require chips. And that the, a better way of cultural remembrance is festival. It's feasting, it's Eucharist, it's tradition, it's telling stories. The problem with this for us though, is that it's too mystical. It's, we don't get the sort of sense of scientific certainty um, that comes with a grain where we can use a little, the little bit to, to look at it exactly. Um, but it's not perfect memory. And there's something very um, nourishing and very human about, the ce about celebration, about festival, about singing folk songs about, that tell the stories of all of our ancestors. And um, that this is a better, this is a better memory than, than the grain offers. Um, it's a, but it has that problem of being too, too mystical, too, uh, the inability to define its edges, to feel comfortable in the certainty that this um, technology um, seemingly offers us. Um, so that was, um, yeah, kind of my take. Also, just briefly at the end, the ways that this technology can become humiliating, of uh, drawing very briefly on Avishai Margalit, um, book, The Decent Society, saying any society that can humiliate its citizens is not a decent society. And the possibility for Liam to be humiliated by having to put his memories up on a wall, the potential for the, for the indecent society um, is increased significantly because of this technology. Um, those are just some of the topics that I, I cover. But yeah, it was as a theologian and a priest, it, this was really sort of my first opportunity to write and think theologically about Eucharist and in the, and in the context of Black Mirror, which was just a ton of fun um, for, me, for me to write. You know, you said something about how does this technology actually humiliating us and kind of making mm -hmm. fools out of us in a way? And, and that Elizabeth, I'm wondering if you could kind of give thoughts, even bringing in uh, Gregory of Nyssa, thinking about this idea of humiliation, but maybe what that's reflecting in us and how that's kind of revealing this society of the spectacle that we live in and, and what that's actually telling us about ourselves. Yeah, so the spectacle, I, I think most, the opening episode of episode one, um, National Anthem is just like a spectacle writ large. And there's kind of also other spectacles. And Gregory talks about theater, so like Roman theater, as being a spectacle. And he also, but he also uses the same word um, to talk about like the miracles God does through Moses in the book of Exodus. Um, and he's in one, yeah, he's probably made his most famous work. And so I kind of am in, interested in interrogating this idea of how spectacles are part of the technology in Benjamin's sense um, in Black Mirror. So they're, they're, they're kind of covering over the, the technology that's being used to produce reality. So like, for example, in like a Roman theater, it was you know, ingenious for its time because it's kind of creating a reality, I guess, but kind of hiding the technology it uses to produce the reality. And, and so, yeah, so Gregory kind of talks about theatre in those terms. And so he talks about the Moses story a bit differently, but I think it's interesting he uses the same word because kind of the technology that, of the reality that God's producing is obviously quite different. So I think it's also, yeah, quite interesting because like the mirrors in Black Mirror are kind of, they're everywhere, but they're nowhere. Like, you know, they in um, 15 million merits, like Bing's entire existence is screens, like all around him, he's like in this screen padded cell below the episodes and he, then he goes to the gym and he's in front of a, a screen and he like, he can't, he can't escape from pornography or advertising, it's just constant. And so all these kind of screens are functioning as mirrors, they're everywhere, but they're almost so present that they're invisible. And that's kind of how theatre works in a way of, in, in the sense of that both are kind of producing a reality um, and that the technology which is being used to produce the reality is kind of hidden in plain sight. So I think, yeah, I think that idea is quite interesting. When I tell people to watch Black Mirror, I have to say to them, just skip the first episode 
of the first season. Like, just skip it. Like, <laughs> like you know, you know, start with season one, episode two, and go from there. Um, I don't know if this has been your all experience when you're like, this is a really great show, but you got to skip that first episode. It, it, has this been sort of your experiences of this? I would say that I think that's most people's experience, but with the with a certain you know political uh happenings in england uh, over recent uh months uh I, th- I feel like we're just continually living in a black mirror episode and so i feel like that episode has become for several years you know it's been the like just skip it just, just it's not worth just get to the good stuff whereas now i feel like that episode hits in a different way uh much like um uh, the Waldo moment hits in a different way post-Trump. And I feel like the, um, mm-hmm. the first episode really has, I think, something more to say uh, in, mm-hmm. since you know, the past few years in England. I'm fairly, I'm fairly certain that that episode was based on true events. With um... It came out later, like two months mm-hmm. afterwards, that there were some shenanigans with pigs and clubs that i can't remember the names of but i think charlie brooker uh, in an interview said it was completely accidental uh, so I, I just committed the post hoc ergo proctor hoc sorry about that it's hard to know this is james here it's always hard to know where to go uh, once that episode comes up it's like then there's a long pause before anything else uh, could be talked about yeah. <laughs> um, and that's one of those things about black mirror though isn't it that it i mean it talks about or gets us to talk about so many things that are, I mean, the most disturbing things we can imagine, right? Um, the most challenging aspects. And looking at where technology intersects with those, uh, because if, if there are things that trouble us and disturb us and worry us in the absence of futuristic technology, then, oh gosh, we've got to be asking these ethical sorts of questions. Uh, but yeah, I know we, we were thinking early on about where Black Mirror might go. And then we were not long after volunteering to write uh, the season uh, if we were given the opportunity to do so. And so started thinking, oh, wow, we could, you know, what if we just make it the, like the religion season? So JB mentioned the cult of the ancestors. And, you know, instead of offering sacrifices, instead of putting flowers on the grave, instead of uh, burning candles, it'll be like, you know, giving money to keep the servers running, right? And of course, Upload sort of explores that as well. But imagining what religion looks like in the Black Mirror universe of the future, and that could be really interesting. And thinking thinking about that, also, you know, what Neat was saying about folktales and partial memory being better than the illusion of having the perfect record. Uh, as somebody who has an interest in family history, I've often wondered, right? I'm I'm a hoarder. Uh, if, if you've seen my books, uh, you know, uh, but it's not just books. And so I try to keep all the digital photos, everything that we've done, because who knows when I might want to go back and look for, you know, my son's childhood photos or things like that. And I've also tried to piece together the little bits of things that have made it from grandparents and further back in my own family tree. And in some ways, having a few photos is maybe better for the genealogist than having hard drives full of so many photos that no one could ever look at them, right? And there's a sense in which that's really one of the questions that's at the heart of the ethics of digital technology and life in our our current age and where the technology is taking us is that instead of having limited information, we have so much information that we can have the illusion of having a complete picture when in fact we still only have of some small sliver of it, uh, whether that's because it's alg- algorithmically determined for us or because we can only listen to so many voices and hear so many things. Mm-hmm. And so uh, just there, there were things that were said that just really resonated with me and I just got really excited about. And since it's been a while since I've seen any episode of Black Mirror, you know, because I've been watching other things during the pandemic, it's, it's got me excited all the more so about uh, the show coming back and maybe even going back and rewatching some episodes and recommending our book, of course. This is Nate. To respond to James, I had one of the, um, after finish my, finishing my doctoral work, um, I had the privilege of for um, four years working at the University of Notre Dame on a postdoc 
in theological ethics and science. And I had the, also the incredible fortune of working with five other postdocs from completely other fields um, in uh, uh, sociology and psychology. And having what I think James is sort of touching on is this problem of data. It's like, well, more data will produce more knowledge or more certainty, but that's actually not really the case. And that's not how like the social sciences work. Like you have to limit the data at some point. And so having limitless data actually doesn't do, it's sort of a myth that that does what we, we might imagine or our knee-jerk reaction might be that that, that, that does. Um, more data cre creates more problems. <laughs> Um, and so that's why you have to cut off at some stage um, who you're, you're the, the group you're going to interview or who that group that you're going to do your study on. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's a partially a data problem. If I may ask a, a question of you brilliant theologians, what do you all think of this constant theme throughout Black Mirror of the natural versus the artificial? Natural human development versus artificial human development. Even within the context of entertainment. Um, there's one where the, the, the video games and, the, and the, where they become the avatars. And it's basically like a, a street fighter, but you're in the game, I uh, forget the name of the episode. But I'm wondering if there's, if you have any thoughts on this kind of binary between natural and artificial, the, which runs the results of the show. One, one example that comes to my mind immediately that I think it would be great to hear Amber chat about is the green apple in 15 million merits. When I think about the juxtaposition that you're describing, um, Nate, I just always think of that green apple that comes out of the vending machine. Yeah, it's an interesting question because Black Mirror does a lot to kind of blur the lines between reality and virtual reality, right? There's a lot of pushing against maybe some stark binaries that we might have in our mind. And that question of natural and artificial would be just another one of those. When I think about the green apple in particular, that to me is just this fantastic token of a, of a technological world. So it's a world in which things are just extracted and they're created to exist not in some organic harmony, but they're created to exist sort of independently and on their own. So you have a world, and this is in 15 million merits, um, you have an a virtual technological world. And this green apple is so weird because it's an organic thing. It's, it's a natural thing. And yet... It's not attached to a tree. It's not in a barrel with a whole bunch of other apples, you know, that are being sold at the market. It is in well, it's in a vending machine and it's kind of on its own isolated. But at the same time, what's interesting about the presence of this apple in that show is it's almost hearkening back to the organic world and saying there is this thing out there, this memory, this distant echo that we do still hear, even though it's repackaged and in many ways it's exploited and even kind of destroyed, uh, its glory is taken away from it. So yeah, I think Black Mirror does a lot to show the consequences of what happens when we try to bring some natural things into this artificial world and making them entirely disconnected from one another. Yeah, it is in uh, Men Against Fire, there's a particular, a really interesting scene where, I mean, the, the plot is, you know, these soldiers have these kind of mass, you know, M, capital M-A-S-S -S implants that uh, kind of have like a, a, a heads up display that help them, you know, fight their battles and whatever. And it, I won't spoil the, the, the episode, but there is a moment where the protagonist, uh, his, his, implant uh, malfunctions because the implant fails he actually begins to notice the natural world around him he, he actually gets on all uh you know his hands and his knees and he smells the grass and he tells his his comrades like do you smell this like can you smell like i don't think i've been able to smell you know and there's this this moment where um he actually gets to appreciate the natural world and the, the 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 colors of the camera actually change a bit. In in my own chapter, you know, I write on on this that it kind of reminds me um, of a very interesting article on Nebuchadnezzar, 
um, and how Nebuchadnezzar is given an animal mind and uh, a scholar named Jared Beverly writes a very interesting article that the animal mind actually is meant to educate uh, rather than just kind of be uh, debase or, you know, humiliate Nebuchadnezzar, but by gaining the perspective of the animal world um, that he's actually educated in the way of the Lord. And I think that some, it seemed like, though no direct dependence uh, needed, it seemed like something similar was happening in this men against fire. And so I really do think that, that at least in this one episode, that the natural world is seen as a higher good um, than the digital. It's interesting that you bring up smell there is that in the our um mine and jb's episode about memory smell is never mentioned as something that can bring back memories you get uh we get sight and and audio but no smell and and no touch so it makes me wonder how authentic is memory that has no smell smell is a significant portion of one's ability to recall so that smell is not mentioned is is Perhaps suspicious. And and it's curious, too, because in Crocodile, which is an episode where we kind of get a kind of precursor to the grain, or at least one could imagine if it's not part of a different universe, but one could imagine sort of the technology that would develop into the grain. One of the things about the recaller is, you you know, they've got to open the beer that they might have smelt in the alleyway before the, the pivotal you know moment occurred, um, you know, and so it totally uh, it speaks to that. It's not smell, but I find it interesting at the end of 15 millimeters that um, we're kind of being the protagonist. We see him um, in a nature, like all around him is nature screens. And we're not, I think it's left a bit ambiguous about whether it's, he's actually in nature. Like, ha has he made it out of this like entire digital encompass? Or like this, yeah, we think it's still probably projected on the screens, but even at that point, kind of this utopia is artificial. Yeah, that's it's very interesting how what he's hoping to see when he gets in the suite at the end, you know, and it looks yeah. like he's overlooking this beautiful forest and that's sort of the lap of luxury, like we've finally gotten to nature. You almost can feel the fresh air. But then when you realize that it too is just a screen and then you sort of fall into this tragic despair of this is just images all the way down, like we've completely lost anything that's real. So I, I think that's a great example. I mean, some of this opens up the, the questions of Eucharist that, uh, that Nate, we were talking about. I mean, just think of the language of real presence um, and what, what is an e e evoked there. Um, you know, what technology in Black Mirror does is explore the line of what's real and then what's sort of mediated by technology. But the earliest Christian faith had to overcome this problem of absence. Jesus was ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of the Son of God. I mean, at the right hand of God, excuse me. Um, but at the same time, the Christians uh, needed to affirm that Christ is with us. Um, by, 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 whether by the by the uh, the Paraclete, uh, by the Spirit, um, that these absences are still need, in need of being bridged, um, and sacraments becomes one of um, you know this this the sort of the centerpiece of how um, presence can be uh, linked and established, and therefore then we you know we have to grapple with is it worse. Or is it less desirable or is it less ideal because it's not quote unquote real? This goes in several different directions, but I'm reminded of the conversation we had at Two Cities about virtual sacraments um, and whether now we're even a further step removed um, by, by uh, necessities and uh, what is gained by these things that can mediate um, and bridge distance and of course what is lost. Well, one thing that was that's interesting to me is in the text that I primarily study, First Clement, right? We have a church in Rome mm -hmm. writing to a church in Corinth, and as part of that, uh, it says the church in Rome says to the church in Corinth, "Let us gaze upon the blood of Jesus Christ." Probably a reference mm -hmm. uh, to the Eucharist, and they're sort of mm -hmm. saying, "Let's even separated by the distance between Rome and Corinth, let's imagine collectively." 
the Eucharist, let's imagine the blood of Jesus uh, being uh, uh, poured out together as we deal with this conflict that's going on uh, in your church. So we may think of this as a, a kind of very modern kind of question, how we deal mm -hmm. with communicating experiences across mm -hmm. distance, but it's something that's already there in some mm -hmm. of our ancient sources, right? They're writing letters to each other and, mm -hmm. and trying to tie their experiences together through, uh, you know, a very non-digital medium, but it's, but it's still happening across space and, and, and time. Yeah, JB, this is Nate. That's a very, that's a really fascinating take about the concept, the Eucharistic concept that I talked about, anamnesis. It's basically like a communication technology, but over centuries, not only in the past, but in the, in the future. Um, if we are being pulled out of time, if we are experiencing in the Eucharist, the same blood of Christ, not only within our own generation, within our own time, but with that, we are communicating whether or not that could be called some kind of like technology. I, I don't know, but it is an interesting idea that we could be at two different spaces in both time and space and still be having that really intense and dare I say mystical connection between between these pieces but that's a that's a really fascinating and wonderful thought thanks jb yeah i mean i would i would just jump in i mean this goes back to what i had been writing about in the san uh, jupitero uh episode but um <laughs> the it i mean i think for a lack of a better word we'll use the word technology because there is something facilitated um that's over the the distance between uh either two congregations or um, Nate, as you were saying, the distance between time. Um, in the Christian tradition, what is, what is mediated is the presence of Jesus. And so all of these texts, um, all of, you know, whatever the language of, of spirit that um, is, is allowing us to, to, to bridge distance, um, it's so that Christ is with us or that we are united to him. Um, and that we affirm the blood of Christ, or we affirm um, that we are in him. And all of this, um, in some ways, um, this, this actually evokes another conversation, a two cities conversation we had when we talked about Dune, um, future memories, and in connection with Blade Runner. Um, Nate, I don't know if you've done any work with memory and Blade Runner, but um, there's a lot there because it's the question of, is it, what is it about memories that make us a person? And so if you could be a robot, but be planted with somebody else's memory. And in which case, how, how formative can a memory be um, to someone's identity? I know Grant McCaskill wrote on this um, in his book, Living with Union in Christ, the Blade Runner aspect with Eucharist. Um, they're also tapping into um, the Passover tradition that um, you know, what we tell the generations to remember that your fathers and, and their journey through the wilderness. And so yeah. we inhabit these memories of the other in order to, to in some way locate ourselves. Yeah, just had the thought, uh, we went from Eucharist to Blade Runner uh, by way of um, San Jalapeno. You know, coming back to smell, right, as sort of uh -huh. a means of transmitting memory, I just couldn't help but wonder whether there's any connection and whether anyone's done any research on the fact that the church traditions that often care less about remembering and claim to at least care less about tradition are also the ones that have eliminated smell as part of worship, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of incense and other things. Mm -hmm. And has there been any study of sort of the role of sort of the smell of worship, you know, in Christianity and other traditions in relation to memory and transmission and things like that. So that's where my mind went. Yeah, no. Um, and so that was, that actually raises a point that um, I had forgot to raise was Mary's, Mary's, uh, Mary's alabaster fragrance that has, that, that permeates the space. Um, and there's been a lot written on this, on the way that um, John and Christian texts um, also use um, these methods to evoke presence and um, and to bridge absence 
Um, and so it is using all of the senses, including smell and sight um, and, um, and, and, and the voice. Um, in fact, uh, one of my colleagues, Janine Hanger, she, she wrote her dissertation on, on the, sensorial, the sensorial experience um, in the Gospel of John um, as ways of, of mediating presence. And, um, and so there's, there's a lot richly there, but I think that we, we can see the analogs to technology. Um, this is, but this was the way that the earliest Christians used letter writing, um, used sacrament, uh, used the festivals to do exactly this, to, um, to, to evoke our memory of, of another, evoke our identity in Christ and then therefore our story um, as his people um, and his continued abiding presence with us. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, and I know we could keep going for, for ages, but lovely to have you all on. It's wonderful to have the book out, and thank you all so much for your fantastic contributions. Thanks so much for inviting us. Yeah, it's been a privilege to be part of this. Thank you so much. Thank you.